This is WSKG's Politics Tuesday. I'm Tom Magnarelli. This week on Politics Tuesday, we talk with a campaign field organizer who's employing some new tech to connect with voters. Plus, we take a look at the Republicans running for statewide office in New York, why they're giving it a go, and what else we can infer about their candidacies. Right now, we're joined by WSKG government and politics reporter Vaughn Golden. What's going on? Not much. We're just three weeks out to the election. Phillies are in the playoffs. Eagles are undefeated. Yeah. And life is good, Tom. Yes, it's, <laughs> it is amazing. Well, some good stuff happening in Pennsylvania and uh, Syracuse, I will say. Undefeated in uh, Fair. football still. Fair. So this morning, we're reporting out a story I know you've been working on for a few weeks about the timeline for the state's redistricting process and how that played out. Can you give us a quick summary and explain why this is kind of a big deal? Yeah, yeah. Um, As some quick background, the redistricting process was supposed to go through the state's independent redistricting commission. Very long story short, they failed and the legislature ended up drawing its own lines and that ended up in court and then the lines were eventually thrown out. I followed that litigation pretty closely and was very curious through the whole time of what the state spent on lawyers to defend these maps. And what I found was actually a little bit more interesting than that. This, um, the state legislative leaders, uh, they retained legal counsel to work on redistricting matters months before the legislature was even really supposed to be involved in that process. I obtained copies of the contracts with these firms using a very little used portion of the state's Freedom of Information Law. You, you can request records from the legislature. Um, and, and those records showed that the Senate had lawyers doing work on redistricting as far back as June 2021. The Independent Redistricting Commission, which was supposed to draw those lines, didn't even announce it would start holding public hearings until July of 2021. And one of the things we've heard out of this process again and again, especially from Democrats, is that this process was doomed to fail. The commission would deadlock and the legislature would end up drawing the lines anyway. So what's I I think is probably most interesting to hear is some skeptics say that the Democrats knew all along that they could have done this, made the panel fail, and then draw their own lines. And we we certainly don't have enough to prove that, uh, but we do now know that the legislative leaders were at least very, very, very prepared for the possibility of this happening by retaining legal counsel several weeks, months before uh, the process was ever really, really in their hands. Um, I should also note the Senate, and I reached out to the Senate and Assembly majorities, and they did not return my request for comment. And did you ever find answers to your original question about how much these lawsuits Uh, cost? Oh, yeah, yeah. I requested invoices as well from these legal counsel. Um, I only got invoices from the Senate. I'm appealing to try to get the ones from the Assembly as well if they've been turned in. Uh, the total was $528,000 for the Senate lawyers uh, from the ones that there had been sent to the legislature. And around $150,000 of that was sent, was uh, invoiced before the legislature even knew it would draw the maps. That, so that was work being done mostly in 2021. Uh, also in the retainer agreements, I should note, uh, there were caps on how much the lawyers uh, would be compensated. It was $1.5 million for the lawyers for the Assembly and $3 million for the lawyers for the state Senate. So they were prepared to do a lot of work on behalf of the Senate and Assembly. 
Uh, switching gears to uh, some other numbers, you took some time this weekend crunching campaign finance spending and contributions for the 19th Congressional District. What can you tell us about where these numbers stand going into the last few weeks of the race? Yeah, it was actually a pretty stark difference in campaign funds. Um, and there's a there's a big a- asterisk there on campaign funds that I'll get back to. Um, but as, a, as it stands, Josh Riley, he's the Democrat running in the 19th. Uh, his campaign is much more flush with cash. He's got $1.1 million on hand as of the end of last month. And he raised nearly $1.5 million since the beginning of August. Uh, 1.3 of that is from individual contributions. That's from, you know, people like you and me. Um, And uh, roughly 20%, 23% of that $1.3 million is from what we call small dollar donations. That's uh, what we define as under $200. Okay. And what about Molinero? Yes. uh, The time frame for Molinero's numbers is a little bit different because he filed more up-to-date paperwork after his special election, and it's just a different time frame for when that paperwork gets filed. Uh, But in the last two weeks of September, he only raised about $88,000. 46 of that came from individuals, and about a quarter of that was from those small under $200 donations. Molinero ended the quarter with only about $404,000 on hand. So as far as campaign cash, he is uh, definitely falling well below uh, Josh Riley's campaign. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's a that's a lot less than uh, Riley's, I guess. Right yeah, now. yeah. Yeah. And this is Mark Molinero, the uh, Dutchess County executive, the Republican in the yes. race. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, why don't you go back? You had mentioned uh, that there was this asterisk. Oh, so yeah. what was that about? Yeah. yeah. So that that's, uh, in, and I always keep this in my brain, the asterisk is all about outside spending. The vast majority of money you see coming into play in this race isn't being spent through these campaign accounts. I mean, those ca- accounts are spending a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. But this outside spending is, is some of the bi- the stuff we really see, too. Uh, this is money that's coming through super PACs and other organizations. So, like, all the ads you see on TV, yeah. I, I, I believe all of them, if not most of them. Yeah, I know. How, how, how A lot of them. Not watch Sunday football and, right. <laughs> and <laughs> not be hearing from Josh Riley and Mark Molinero. Yeah. Uh, but most of those ads are paid for from these groups, these outside spending organizations. Like, if you see Congressional Leadership Fund or the DCCC, C, etc. On an ad, those are are these outside spending groups. Uh, Open Secrets, uh, awesome resor- resource. Um, they track this uh, in a really user friendly way, and we can see that these groups have spent over five million dollars in the nineteenth so far, and that's only going to get a way larger and and larger faster as we come down towards election day. Wow. Okay. And and just to sum it up, um, you know, when you look at all these numbers, you know, does this tell us anything about where this campaign is going? I mean, you see Riley's got the more money. He's got, is, is that a good sign for him? Does that mean, is, is the wind pointing in his direction? Yeah, it's, it's, as we get down to these last few weeks, I, I think it's, it's, frustrating because we the way FEC filings work, we can't see how much super PACs are spending in the last week or wow. so leading yeah. up to an election, um, which is really f- frustrating when mm-hmm. we're trying to get these numbers out there. Um, but, you know, and just very hypothetically, either Molinero or Riley could be sitting on, uh, you know, a commitment from, be it the 
DCCC or, or some super PAC somewhere uh, that's sitting, waiting, going to drop you know, several million dollars on ad buys or uh, more likely campaign mailers or things like that, or, or even getting volunteers or bodies out here to go knock on doors. Um, so, you know, there's a lot we can infer from this, especially the early interest in that race. And that's kind of uh, can sometimes be a good predictor of where these national groups are going to want to put their money closer to Election Day. And I think uh, a lot of the polling and especially some of this early money that's being spent does suggest that New York 19 will continue to be a battleground and will be a place where the outside spending continues to flow uh, coming up to Election Day. All right, I'm Tom Magnarelli. Vaughn, I'll turn the rest of the show over to you. All right, thanks, Tom. Hey, at noon on Thursday, WSKG is hosting a live debate between the candidates in the 52nd State Senate District. That's Leah Webb on the Democratic line and Rich David on the Republican line. That district covers Tompkins and Cortland counties, as well as the western half of Broome County, including the city of Binghamton. I'll be moderating that debate alongside WSKG's Phoebe Taylor Buolo. So tune in anywhere you get WSKG, noon on Thursday. fundamental aspects of running a solid political campaign is not just getting in touch with voters, but also knowing a little bit about them. The tools and strategies for doing so have changed immensely. Smartphones have become more ubiquitous, the COVID-19 pandemic limited in-person interactions. One of the things that's come of that is an app called Reach. It's currently being piloted by the Leah Webb campaign. Webb is the Democrat running in the 52nd State Senate District against Republican Rich David. I've asked Emily Adams, field director for the Web campaign, to give us a rundown of how the app works and how tools like it may change the way campaigns operate. Emily, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. So before we get into what this this app is and does, um, I kind of want to ask you, how would things work before the app in terms of walk lists, of building these kinds of lists of voters and contacts that this app Mm -hmm. is is eventually, we're going to talk about how that works. Uh, well, the standard procedure on a campaign is uh, you, you, you fi- try to find as many bodies as you possibly can. Uh, if you can't find them, then you have to go out and hire them, which has big budget impacts. And you get the volunteers out to knock on people's doors on a select number of doors that have been targeted because you would run out of volunteers if you tried to go to every door. So you, you're, you're more so building that list of likely yeah, Democratic Yeah, out on the doors or on the phones or maybe tabling uh, at an event in order to get positive IDs on voters. Who's going to show up for my candidate on November 8th? And it's also more so who, you know, what is this person's phone number or email to, to get right, them? Right. You try to gather as much information about the voters that you can't get from the Board of Elections so that you can keep reminding them because the research shows people tune out. They forget. They get busy. They have busy lives. You know, election day comes and then the next day they're like, oh, I forgot to vote. So how, tell me about this app, uh, the Reach mm-hmm. app. I don't want this to be a, a commercial forum, but yeah. um, can you explain mm-hmm. just briefly how it how it works and what that's trying to do uh, to connect with these voters? Well, it was created by some campaign workers who were uh, working for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, in that election. And they were having an experience where 
they felt like they were missing a lot of potential voter IDs for their, you know, their program uh, because they would meet maybe one person and never meet the, like, the family members of that person because they were sort of not on the street and not easily accessible. So the program was designed so that you could meet that one person who was out at the job or out in a public-facing situation and say, hey, won't you go home and get all your family members identified for us? So it's it's not like, um, you know, go tell your friends. It's literally connect your friends with the campaign, more or less, through this app. Yes. Or, or through sh- through contact sharing through the app. Yeah, it's, it's a way to the, – the app was a way to – so to make it easy and fun for that you know, family member to sort of become part of the campaign team in their own little world. And they were not being asked to make cold calls, which a lot of people hate doing. And they were not being asked to take time out of their lives between 5 and 7 p.m. to go and knock on doors when they would rather be you know, having dinner with their families. It was a, a way that they could organize and bring in more voters for the campaign without you know, cramping their lifestyle so much. So it's it's more so connecting with voters, too, and less less volunteers and people to do the heavy lifting kind of things like you're talking about knocking on doors and things like that. Right. And it's, it's kind of, it's also for people who have a smartphone uh, and are comfortable with it, it's it's kind of gamified. You know, you, you tick on things and, and, you know, little fireworks go off when you've reached your 10 people. So, so there are literal goals. and Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's all set up. I haven't figured that all out yet because you know, <laughs> this is actually, it's not something the campaign asked me to do. Uh, so it's sort of like I'm doing this on my own time for the campaign mm-hmm. um, because the campaign is still definitely looking for people to knock on doors sure. and make phone calls the traditional ways that are proven. And so this is sort of an experiment we're doing here in Tompkins County. Okay. And as an exp- it's an experiment still, but do you have any gist on how it's working out at this point? Uh, I know that a lot of people have been interested um, for the, for the, in the various groups where I've explained what this is about. People go, oh, you mean I don't have to make cold calls? And oh, yeah. the, 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 little, the little lights bulbs start going off, and they're excited about it. But they're going to need more... Just like with everything new, you, know, you, you got to like get into it and start doing it. So I see a bunch of people have signed up because I'm the admin and I can go on the back end. But I don't see that they're actually logging their contacts yet and okay. getting the data back to me. Do you have a gist that you could share of how many people have signed up for it at this yeah, point? Maybe 20 people signed up now. Okay. Okay. Looking forward, you know, down the road, um, do you think this is something that could be part of campaign strategies moving forward? I think there's a lot of potential, uh, especially people don't answer the phone if they don't know who it is, and they don't answer the door uh, either. I'm, I'm one of those people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't answer the phone if I don't know who it is. It's uh, So we may just sort of be forced into something like this. Although at some point, you know, we can back up a bit and sort of look at the overall picture and get philosophical and say, you know, where are elections going in this country? Because so much money gets poured into all the top-level campaigns. Right. And it's now starting to be that even down to school board, there's somebody, some rich, dark money guy pushing in their favorite super conservative candidate. And with with infinite amounts of money, you just buy that seat. Yeah. You know, so what else? You know, there is no way to 
counterbalance that. Do you think a tool like this is better employed? I, I, I know you and your background mm-hmm. are more so the grassroots progressive yeah, yeah. background, but do you think that this is more so better employed as a tool for, I don't want to say insurgent campaigns, that's a, that's a kind of negative term, but um, more the grassroots organizing, whether it be left or right? Yes, I think it, because if, if a campaign has a grassroots candidate, then there's enthusiasm on the part of the volunteer or the voter for what the candidate really stands for, mm-hmm. not just you know a whole bunch of people who saw a lot of the TV ads and they're going to go vote because they're afraid of the other guy because the ads are really scary. You know, those sorts of people don't really. It's a different kind of mass movement. So when you have a mass movement of positive energy behind the grassroots candidate because of their positive. Uh, policy agenda and so forth, then that lends itself, I think, better to this kind of app. All right. I've been speaking with Emily Adams, field organizer for the Leah Webb campaign, and that campaign is using an app called Reach to help connect with voters ahead of the midterm elections. Emily, thanks for coming on. Okay. You're welcome. New York voters will have the opportunity to fill statewide elected offices this year. That includes governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, and comptroller, as well as a U.S. Senate seat. Despite facing an uphill battle, Republicans are once again fielding a full slate of candidates. Here to discuss who is on that ticket and how the statewide Republicans are campaigning is Dan Clark, managing editor and host of New York Now, a statewide politics and government program from WMHT. Dan has interviewed the entire Republican slate as part of the program. Dan, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Vaughn. So really briefly, um, can you just give us a quick rundown of who the Republicans are running for statewide office? Of course. At the top of the ticket is Congressman Lee Zeldin from Long Island. He's running with Allison Esposito, a veteran of the NYPD. I think she was there for about 25 years. She retired to run for lieutenant governor with Zeldin. For state attorney general, we have Michael Henry, for state controller, which is basically the state's money manager. We have Paul Rodriguez, who spent a lot of time in the state's banking and finance industry. And then for U.S. Senate, against Chuck Schumer, we have Joe Pinion, who a lot of people may know from his work on Newsmax as a commentator, but he's also a Republican strategist as well. He has been in the past. Mm -hmm. So the last time New York elected a Republican on a statewide ticket was Governor George Pataki in 2002. And before that, uh, we, we have to go all the way back to 1970 uh, to find Republicans winning statewide in New York. I, I guess to address what is, what is pun intended, the elephant in the room, uh, what do the candidates say there? Why do the candidates say they're running despite the state's overwhelmingly Democratic lean? So Republicans are really united in one common message in this year's election, and it's not that much different than past election years. But this year, Lee Zeldin especially is framing this election as a point of change for New York. He wants New Yorkers to think if they have if their life has gotten better over the past 12 years or has it not? He calls this a breaking point for a lot of New Yorkers. And that message is going right down the ticket. I think Republicans in New York understand that they have an enrollment disadvantage uh, about Two-thirds of the state's uh, enrollment is Democratic, I believe, or 50%, somewhere around there. It's certainly a large share. Republicans do not have an advantage there. So I think that they know that they have to play on really common themes. 
Two of them that Republicans are really trying to drive home for New Yorkers this year are crime and cost of living. We've seen crime on the rise since about 2019. It's been going up in certain places. It's gone down, but it's stayed pretty consistently high in certain areas like violent crime, areas like that. Um, Republicans are really trying to drive home the point that they are the better option, in their opinion, to tackle this crime problem. Cost of living, they say that it's theirs as well. They say Democrats haven't done a good enough job there. So, so I want to play this clip um, from your interview with Joe Pinion uh, running for the U.S. Senate seat. Uh, you talked to, to Pinion in March. Uh, here he's giving a part, of a part of a stump speech on why he's a better alternative than uh, Senator Chuck Schumer. Our thesis for this campaign is clear. If you are unhappy with the world as it is today, you cannot continue to vote for the architects who built it. There is no greater architect in American politics today than Chuck Schumer. And we believe we can build an uncommon coalition to be successful, not only in this election, but providing the type of advocacy that puts the people of New York first, not the politics of a political party. Pitt, so, so opinion's pretty pretty clear here in that his race is more about voting against Schumer. It, it, it kind of seems like. It, is this, do you think this is pretty similar with the rest of the ticket? And, and how are they kind of crafting their messaging? Is it more about them as candidates or the people they're running against? It's a mix, but I would say if I was going to choose between the two, they're definitely trying to campaign against someone. I think Republicans in New York know that there are certain issues that New Yorkers are really uh, not in line with their party on. For example, abortion. A recent Siena poll uh, showed that about two-thirds of New Yorkers support abortion when it's always legal or mostly legal, I think was the terminology they used. Republicans, most of them are against abortion, including the one at the top of the ticket, Congressman Lee Zeldin. So I think when you see Joe Pinion and others talking about things like this, they're trying to send the message that regardless of party, there are these issues that cross the divide that they can focus on. Their argument is really that the Democrats who have been in these offices for years and years haven't changed things enough for New Yorkers, and they want to come in and change them, uh, in their opinion, for the better. We'll see if that shakes out. Of course, there are issues like abortion, uh, issues like LGBTQ rights that a lot of New Yorkers are just not in step with the Republican Party on. How much of that, uh, we, we had uh, Karen DeWitt on the show uh, a few weeks ago to discuss the government uh, governor's race. How much of this, and, and one of the things she brought up, is uh, the big portion uh, or a big strategy in these statewide races is targeting independent voters or um, uh, swing voters or the amount of swing voters that still exist. How much of is of that messaging, uh, what you were just discussing, do you think is targeted towards those swing voters? And is that a common theme across the whole statewide ticket this year? Absolutely. I think the target is swing voters. But Republicans know they also have to get some share of Democrats to win. There's just no equation unless they won so much of upstate and the suburbs. They need part of New York City and they need some Democrats. So when you hear them talking about these common themes, that's them trying to attract people across the aisle on these issues. I I mean, Republicans have known for quite some time that they're not doing well in New York in terms of registration. What they've tried to do in the past couple of years, especially, is bring in people that they haven't necessarily had in leadership positions in the party before. I mean, you look at this year's statewide ticket for the Republican Party, it's the most diverse by far in the party's history. I mean, you have 
Joe Pinion, who is a Black New Yorker. You have Paul Rodriguez, a Latinx New Yorker. You have Alison Esposito, who is a gay New Yorker herself. Uh, in a lot of ways, in the diversity portion of the ticket, it really goes right up against where the Democrats have. And I think that's part of their overall strategy to say, hey, this isn't just a party of one demographic. We're trying to reach all of you as well. Mm-hmm. What kind, And this is my last question. What, what kind of role does, does the ticket play in those actual down-ballot races, especially the competitive ones? Like we're here in New York 19 in Broome County uh, or New York 22 or any of the other competitive congressional races. Uh, so w- what role does the statewide ticket play in terms of, of raising money, raising awareness, uh, you know, getting people out to vote? Oh, it's absolutely key. I mean, unless that these are districts that are considered battleground districts where there's going to be a lot of attention, both at the national level and the local level on these races. I mean, the key really here is national media. If a a national outlet focuses on one of these races, like uh, in the Hudson Valley uh, and the Southern Tier, (laughs) Mark Molinaro versus Josh Riley, congressional race, as you mentioned, I mean, that could be a very tight race. And if the state doesn't the state party doesn't invest money in races like that, you really see the narrative taking control by the other candidates on the ballot, like Elise Zeldin, like a Kathy Hochul. And in a district like what we see in the Southern tier, Lee Zeldin's messaging might resonate more than Kathy Hochul's. So if we don't see the state Democratic Party get more involved in these races, it's really these candidates are on an island and it's up to them. All right, we'll leave it there. I've been speaking with Dan Clark, managing editor and host of New York Now from WMHT. Dan, thanks so much. Thanks, Bob. And that's it for this week's episode of Politics Tuesday from WSKG. We have three weeks, just three weeks to go until Election Day. So please make sure you like and more importantly, share the podcast around to your circles of political junkies. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. And a big shout out to anybody who knows the artist that performs this song. If you do know, no cheating, please, no cheating. Hit me up on Twitter or Facebook and I will... I don't know, give you a shout out or something. For WSKG's Tom Magnarelli, I'm Vaughn Golden. This is Politics Tuesday from WSKG.